0: Okay, Brian's going to come um, and speak to us in a moment, but before that I'm going to read um, our passage this morning. Um, And Brian has been very gracious to me in choosing a lovely Old Testament passage from 2 Kings. So if you would like to turn to 2 Kings, chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 25. So get your Bible open or on your phone or on your lap if you have an old school paper version. Um, And I'm going to read from 2 Kings, chapter 13, verses 1 to 25. And there are some wonderful names in here. So why don't you read with me? It says this. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned for 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadid, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a saviour, so that they escaped from the hands of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Aserah also remained in Syria, Samaria. For there was not left to to Jehoaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash his son reigned in his place. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah king of Judah are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel so Joash slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat on his throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him crying my father my father the chariots of Israel and its horsemen and Elisha said to him take a bow and arrows so he took a bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastwards, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in until you may until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadid, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehohaz, took again from Ben-Hadid, the son of Hazel, the cities that he had taken from Jehohaz, his father, in war. Three times, Jeho- Johash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Brian, why don't you come? Let me pray for Brian quickly. Father, we are thankful once again that Brian is here with us this morning. We're asking that by the power of your spirit, you would anoint him to bring your word in power to us this morning, we're praying this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Ben. I don't think you really realize how long that passage is until somebody else is reading it out loud, and you're just sitting there thinking, "Wow, this goes on." So we have a, a lot to go over through, but we're not going to um, kind of pick apart everything really in depth. Uh, for those of you who have not met me yet, I'm um, Brian. Has been as has already been mentioned. I came to England. In two thousand and fourteen, with the Air Force, like a lot of you, um, but I married an uh, English woman here, and we decided to stay so I got out of the military in two thousand and seventeen and we 've been here ever since came to bRBC around that same time, really got plugged in and and this is our home church and so now i'm i 'm studying theology and and hopes to pursue pastoral ministry in the future so that 's a little bit about us we have uh, my wife 's name is Donna. you might have met her. And we have a two-year-old named Elijah. So it's a little bit about us. Um, But now I'm going to kind of move into a question for all of us sitting here today. I wonder if you can remember maybe a time in your life where you've devoted a lot of time and energy into something. um, And then at the end, you really had nothing to show for it. Right? Maybe when all was said and done and you were finished, it felt like it didn't really amount to anything. Right, this, this might have been your experience with school. Maybe you went to university to, to study a particular field because you said, that's what I want to do with my life. And then you finished your degree and you realized, this is not what I want to do with my life. I actually don't want to do anything like this. So you felt like it was all for nothing. Or maybe this is something you've experienced at work. You're working on a particular project. You're, you're committing all of this, this time into it. You're pouring your efforts in. And then something goes wrong and they scrap the entire project. You feel like it was all pointless. Or maybe you were planning a holiday or a vacation abroad and you were spending evening after evening putting things together, planning it all out, saying, all right, we're gonna do this event and this activity and then COVID-19 comes by and sweeps it all to the side and it's all canceled. Your plans were for nothing. Or maybe you're following the English football team. (laughs) Going through the Euro 2020s, the tournament, it's going so well, and we're watching it, anticipating, following every match, only to lose in in the finals. Maybe that one still hits a little bit hard for us. But there are so many scenarios in life that we can look at, that we observe, and we feel like it was all for nothing. That when all was said and done, after all the time, effort, and energy was poured in, it felt like it was pointless. Now that experience feels a lot like Elisha's story in the Bible. You see, Elisha, not to be confused with Elijah, he was a prophet for more than 50 years, serving the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, This was after the country had split into two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now as a prophet, Elisha spoke the very words of God to God's people, and he was God's mouthpiece in a sense, speaking and writing everything that God revealed to him. And he spent his life uh, rescuing Israel from their enemies, defending them in battle and in war, uh, calling the people to repentance, to to abandon their sin, and, and to stop worshiping false gods. And he was also an advisor to the king. He was to give the king instructions and to lead him on a right and good path. Now, Elisha's whole life was dedicated to serving Israel and her king. So what did he have to show for it all? Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. King Jehoahaz, who, who ruled the northern kingdom, was a failure. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that name that appears in these passages, Jeroboam, that's the name of the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was sinful. Right? He he worshiped false gods. In fact, he was the one who set up all the false idols around the country in the first place. He was the standard of evil for Israel. So so when we see a statement saying he walks in the way of Jeroboam, that means that Jehoahaz is just really, really bad. He's He's the worst of the worst. Not only this, he's leading the rest of the nation and all of its people to follow after him, doing the same evil things that he himself does. So it's not just about himself and his own sins and his own failures. He's leading the entire nation astray. And because of this, because of the king's failure, God hands over Israel to their enemies Let's read verse (laughs) 3. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the the son of Haziel. You see, God will never allow sin to go unpunished. His anger is building up against all of the evil things that occur all over the world everything will be punished. You know, many non-Christians out there will tell you that God is a God of love and nothing else. That's, that's all that he is. But God is love. He is. But he's also a God of justice. That's actually connected to his love. To, to love is to not let evil go unpunished. To not just ignore what happens in the world. So here we see God's wrath breaking into creation, and he's punishing Israel. He's handing them over to their enemies, handing them over to Syria. You see, Elisha, he spent his entire life defending Israel and calling them out of their sins. And yet here they're trapped by their sins, and their enemy oppresses them. They're they're being torn apart. Things look desperate for Israel. But then we see a glimmer of hope. Let's read verses 4 and 5. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly... God listens to Jehoahaz. And this is not because Jehoahaz deserves it. We've already established very clearly he does not deserve anything from God. But God is merciful. He's kind. He's, he's gracious. So he provides a savior to Israel so that they can escape the hand of the Syrians. And now We don't know exactly who this savior is. There's some speculation out there to kind of pinned down. Um, but all we know is that for a season, Israel is delivered. They're rescued from their enemies, and they, they finally get to go back to their homes and live their lives like they once did. So things feel like they're a little bit brighter in Israel at this point. So if this was, this, you know, maybe if, if we look at it this way, if this were a film or a movie This almost feels like the climactic finish where you you get to the part and you say, okay, now we have the happy ending. This is where we can just sit back and relax and say, all right, I'm happy with how this unfolded. But that might not give us a clear picture of what's actually happening here. Let's read verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. You see, Israel's biggest problem is spiritual, right? They, they continue to walk in their evil ways. They, they continue to sin. They cling to their false gods. You know, never mind the bondage of war. These people are in spiritual captivity. You know, the Asherah is the idol of the the false pagan goddess that Israel began to worship. They were commanded to destroy these idols. Instead, Still they remain. They're filling the country and the people are following after them. And it's not just that the Israelites rejected Yahweh completely. They, they didn't do that. They simply added false gods to him. They combined their worship of the biblical God with the worship of false gods. They wanted both. And I wonder how many of us in this world today live our lives like that. One foot in the world, one foot in Christ. Give me money, power, pleasure, success, whatever the cost. Elevate those things as the most important parts of my life. Let me bow down and worship and chase them all. Let them all share their seat with Christ. We want to make a lot of different things the objects of our hearts. Now this heart problem, this idolatry, is exactly why God handed them over to Israel, or over to Syria. And even though we see God being merciful and sending a savior, the damage has already been done. Let's look at verse 7. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So King Ahab, who was an earlier king of Israel, was able to summon 2,000 chariots to his defense. And now Israel had only 10 chariots. Uh, 50 horsemen, 10,000 footmen. Syria has completely destroyed and demolished Israel's military presence. This is what God has done. He he gave them over into their hands because of their sin, because of their idolatry. And who was it that was leading them into this evil way? King Jehoahaz, their failed king. Rather than lead the people on a right and good path in the way of the Lord, he leads them towards sin and idolatry, the worship of false gods into a path of destruction. Israel needs a different king. And they're about to get one. Let's read verses eight and nine. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his place. So Jehoahaz dies, and, and his son, Joash, or Jehoash, takes over the throne. Right, so, so, what kind of a king will he be? Uh, will he undo the damage that his father has done in Israel? You can imagine Elisha just staring at this new king with expectation and hope. Will Jehoash finally turn things around for Israel? Will things actually start getting better? Let's find out. Let's read verses 10 and 11. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria And he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. But he walked in them. Tragedy. Joash or Jehoash reigns for 16 years. And he is just as much a failure as his own father. He does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He leads Israel into sin. He does whatever he pleases. And then the author tells us very briefly about his death. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Now, the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So if you're looking at the history of Israel unfold, and you're in Elisha's shoes, and you're staring at all of this, how do you feel? Successful? Do you feel hopeful? What do you have to show for over 50 years of committing yourself to protecting Israel from their enemies and leading them away from their sins? A failed nation. Uh, The people are immoral and sinful. Uh, They chase after false gods. Uh, Their kings are complete and utter failures. Uh, They lead the people into evil. The army is ineffective. They're crushed. They're like dust blowing away in the wind. They cannot defend themselves. So how are things going for Elisha? Not so good. So where on earth can we find hope for Israel? For everyone? Where do we look? Where can we turn? Because it doesn't feel like there's any hope for us here. Now I know that we we just finished reading about Joash's death. But now we're going to look at something that occurs during his life. So so we're going to go back in time a little bit. Let's read verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Syria, went down to him and wept before him crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So Elisha has fallen ill. He's on his deathbed. He's preparing to die. And during this time, Joash, the king of Israel, comes to visit him. And he seems really concerned. Uh, Joash is showing a profound and deep respect for this man of God. He seems to really love him. He's crying. He's grieving over his impending death. And Joash says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen Now These are the same words that Elisha said to Elijah when he was taken up by God, and the two were separated by chariots and horses of fire. You see, Elijah was the prophet that Elisha took over for. Uh, When Elisha said these words, he actually saw real chariots and horses of fire. So what's going on in Joash's mind? Is he really seeing the same thing occur? Chariots and horses of fire? Maybe. That is one possibility. But more likely, he's probably really worried about losing Elisha. For more than 50 years, Elisha served as the chariots and horsemen of God, Israel's primary defense. He was their one-man army. He single-handedly won battles against their enemies in war. And he received secret knowledge from the Lord about their enemies' actions and movements before they ever did them. He was like the perfect spy, always one step ahead of their enemies. And now he's dying, the chariots and horsemen of God. What will Israel do once he's gone? How will they stand up to their enemies? Their army is dwindling. Their kings are complete failures. Will everything just fall apart once he's gone? When he dies, will Israel be overrun? Will the entire nation be lost? It's hard to see situation, uh, hope in a situation like this. But Elisha still has one more trick up his sleeve. Let's read verses 15 and 16. And Elisha said to him, "'Take a bow and arrows.' "'So he took a bow and arrows.' Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it, and Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. So Elisha is providing one last prophecy of hope and victory for Israel. It is being delivered through a visual demonstration. The king takes a bow and arrows, and he draws the bow back. Elisha places his hands onto the king's hands, symbolizing prophetic support and divine help. It will not be the king alone who accomplishes what is prophesied, but a king who is held up and supported by God. This does not rest on the king's shoulders, but on God's shoulders. He will do it. He will accomplish it. As Surely as the king is supported by Elisha's hands, so too God will support Israel. But this gesture also informs us that Jehoash... Um, It informs Jehoash that a prophecy is about to take place. It's telling him, listen, you've got to pay attention. Everything that's about to happen next is something of prophetic significance. So you need to to stand up, sit up straight, pay attention to what I'm about to do. Then Elisha goes on in verse 17. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. Shoot. And he shot and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So east was the general direction of the Syrian attacks. This arrow is ripping through the air, flying toward their enemies and this is a visual demonstration that makes victory for Israel certain. It was declared by God, he will do it. Now, Jehoash simply needs to continue trusting in God and obeying him with all his might. And the divine warrior will fight on their behalf. They will accomplish it. He cannot fail. But then we read verses 18 and 19. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. See, God was testing Jehoash to see if he had the courage to finish what God had given him to do. He knew that these arrows had prophetic significance. He should have beat the ground over and over again until Elisha told him to stop. Instead, Jehoash offers an unenthusiastic and weak display of a few lazy taps of the arrows on the ground. Jehoash holds back. He is half-hearted, lacking in faith. And now Israel will only have a partial victory. What a bummer. This is sad news. It's anticlimactic uh, rather than completely conquer their enemies, Israel will go halfway. And then we read the first part of verse 20. So Elisha died and they buried him. It just keeps getting worse. The hero is dead. The, the defender of Israel, the prophet of God. What he leaves behind is a nation ruled by an evil king, uh, people who openly sin and worship against false gods, and an army that blows away like the dust in the wind. E- even the final prophecy that was, that Elisha left them with, which was supposed to encourage them and give them hope, only leads to a partial victory. This doesn't seem very good. Where is the hope? Let's keep reading verses twenty and twenty-one. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So basically, some Israelites went out in the springtime of the year, uh, and they were going to bury a dead man. And even though this was long before modern medicine took place, they still knew how to check for pulses at this time. They could confirm that somebody was really dead. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't in a coma. This man was truly dead. And if there is a God, surely he has the power and the authority to raise the dead. Now what happened is, is while they were burying this dead man, They were surprised by a band of enemy soldiers, a squad of Moabites quickly approaching out of nowhere. And so what did they do? Well, they panicked. They scattered all around, all over the place, um, trying to get rid of this body as quickly as they possibly could. And so they found the nearest cave they could find, and it just so happened to be the grave of Elisha. And as soon as they threw the corpse into this cave and it touched Elisha's bones, the man sprang back to life. Uh, He was instantaneously and miraculously revived by the prophet's dead bones. There is no reason for us to doubt this. God can do it. But what does this mean? You can imagine that question being asked all over Israel. Uh, Maybe in the barber shops or or in the local cafe. uh, Maybe in the workplace or at school. People just sitting there thinking to themselves and wondering... What on earth does this mean? Why did this just happen? You know, we have to remember something very crucial about the Israelites. Dead bodies are ceremonially unclean, right? Anyone who touches a dead body becomes unclean themselves, and they have to go through ritual um, cleanliness things to, to purify themselves again. So what does it mean for a dead body to bring life? Because dead bodies are supposed to be dirty. This should not happen. It's not what we would expect. Now one of the things that this miracle does is it validates the works that Elisha did during his life as a prophet of God. It's almost as if it's God's stamp of approval on Elisha's life basically saying that just as I'm now using him in his death, so also I've used him in his life. So what are some of the works that God did through Elisha? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 2, we see Elisha healing the unsafe waters in Jericho through supernatural means. He makes the waters safe to drink so that the people would not die. In chapter 4, he brings the Shunammite son back from the dead, This is not Elisha's first rodeo when it comes to raising dead people. He's done it before. Also in chapter 4, he he feeds 100 men with 20 loaves. Uh, In chapter 5, he heals Naaman of his leprosy. In chapter 6, he causes an axe head to float on the water. Do you know how heavy an axe is? So go home this evening and and just try to get it to float in your bathtub. It's not going to happen. Then also in chapter 6, he traps the Arameans at Dothan with an invisible army of angels. This man fights his wars with angel armies. It doesn't even, it's not fair. It's, it's crazy. The Moabites, um, oh, excuse me, but the, the miracles of his dead bones, they also, they also validate the prophecies that he gave while he was alive. All of the prophecies that were given through his life came true. So it doesn't just validate his works, but the prophecies. Uh, The Moabites were slaughtered in the valley of Edom, just as Elisha had foretold. The the siege of Jerusalem was lifted, and and the king's officer was trampled to death at the gate, just as Elisha had said. Haziel murdered his master and became king of Aram, uh, just as Elisha had promised The house of Ahab was destroyed and Jezebel was devoured just as Elisha had prophesied. The miracle of Elisha's dead bones proves that everything he ever said or did in God's name was true. It was from the Lord. Even down to his final prophecy. Let's take a look at that now. This is verses 22 to 25. Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. So they were oppressed all the days of King Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them because of the promise that he made to their fathers. Uh, Verse 24. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Three Three victories over Syria for the three strikes of Jehoash's arrows just as Elisha had promised. So God has now fulfilled it. This prophecy is confirmed. And through these victories, we seem to catch a glimpse of hope. Things start to look really good at this point. We feel like we can sit back and relax and take a breath. But as we continue through the rest of this book, king after king is a failure. They continue to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam. Israel continues to worship false gods. The entire nation remains corrupt. And eventually, God completely hands them over to their enemies. And they're taken away captive to a foreign land. They're exiled. Ripped away from their homes. So what was the point of Elisha's 50-year ministry was it all for nothing? He poured his life out to protect Israel from their enemies and call them out of their sins. And in the end, Israel it remains in their sins and they are totally conquered by their enemies. What good has come out of Elisha's life? Is there any lasting hope that we can take from his story? Well, about 800 years after Elisha, another prophet would rise up. And Elisha's entire life and work and the miracle of his dead bones has always been pointing forward and anticipating this future prophet. His name is Jesus Christ. He is a better prophet, the perfect prophet. Like Elisha, Jesus proclaims the truths of God He speaks God's words, but unlike Elisha, Jesus speaks with his own divine authority. He is God himself, God in the flesh. And we see in Jesus the overshadowing echoes of the miracles performed by Elisha. Elisha cleanses the unsafe waters to preserve life. Jesus offers us living water that springs up into eternal life. All those who drink of it will never thirst again. Elisha brings the Shunammite son back from the dead. Jesus weeps at the gravesite of Lazarus and raises him from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Elisha feeds 100 men with 20 loaves. Jesus feeds 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Jesus is the bread of life. All who come to him will never hunger again. Elisha heals Naaman of his leprosy. Jesus reaches out and touches the leper in full compassion and grace and heals him with his own power. Elisha causes an axe head to float on the water. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus is Lord over the chaos and confusion. The storms obey his voice. Elisha calls on invisible angel armies to fight his battles. And Jesus, having every right to call on those same angel armies, refuses to do so, refuses to call on them to rescue himself from the cross. He dies willingly. Elisha remains dead and buried. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the greater prophet. He is the one who all of the prophets, including Elisha, have always been pointing forward to. It has always been about him. His life, his work. Jesus was innocent and perfect in every single way. No one has ever lived a purer life. His thoughts, his deeds, his mind, his actions, spotless. His love, genuine. His humility, great. His sin, non-existent. His works, perfect. You could never find a fault in him. When he was in the wilderness, do you realize what he was tempted with? He was hungry, so Satan tempted him with bread. There's nothing sinful about wanting bread. He was tempted with a kingdom. When the entire world and the universe already belongs to him, Jesus is God. Jesus never sinned, and he never even had sinful desires. He was perfect in every single way. but our desires are full of sin. We want, we covet, we envy, we lust, we hate. We have a deep filth and sickness that fills our hearts. We are full of evil. It oozes out of us. We are bent inward on ourselves working our entire lives to serve and satisfy our own passions and desires at the expense of everyone else. We are guilty. And yet Jesus died the death that we deserve. He was nailed to a Roman cross and crushed by the wrath of God in our place. God's justice and anger against our sins laid on him. And through his death, we have life. This is what Elisha's story points us to. This is what the miracle of his dead bones points us to. God uses the dead to bring the dead to life. Everyone who believes in this good news is forgiven of all their sins. They appear before God justified. Clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus as if it were their own, they are wrapped in the perfect robes of Christ. God sees them as if they have never sinned and as if they have accomplished and completed every perfect work that Jesus has ever done, simply by believing that Jesus lived for them, that he died for them, and that he was raised for them. By faith alone, God gives them eternal life. They will never die. Now we say things like that, and we're very quick to agree with it, but do we understand what it means? Do we really get how radical the mercy and grace of God truly is? Because this means that tomorrow, or, or next week, or, or next month, when you are wrestling with your sin or whatever temptation is is haunting your life right now and you give yourself over to evil, you're overcome by your sin and then you do it again the next day or the next week or the next month and you just feel crushed by the guilt and the weight of it all and Satan's accusations come flooding in, you feel worthless, you feel dirty, you feel unclean. Do you know that in that moment, you are still acceptable to God? You are still pleasing to Him, adored by Him, loved by Him. Sure, your actions Might not be. But you yourself are cleansed. Every stain of your sin has been painted on the cross of Christ in his blood. And you and I walk away clean. Every stain of your sin has been painted on the cross of Christ in his blood. And you and I walk away clean. He takes our sins and we take his righteousness there's not an ounce of your guilt that remains and not an ounce that will ever come upon you again you and i will continue to sin every day for the rest of our lives but because of jesus god's love for us is unchanging no matter how much you fail god's grace and mercy endures Because Jesus suffered in our place. Because Jesus died for us. And because Jesus lives for us. You can never out-sin the sufficiency of Christ's death. We are united to Jesus, made one with him by faith alone. In order for God to reject you, he would have to cast off Jesus Christ. And that can never happen You are as safe as Jesus himself. You're secure. You can take a breath. Don't look at your own track record. Don't look at how good or how bad you've been performing. Look at the performance of Christ. He is enough. And he stands in our place. And then he takes this perfect record that he's earned for us and he hands it over to us freely. And he says, believe. Just believe. God will judge you on the basis of what I have done. It's all by faith, all by grace. But God, he does not just leave us in this spiritually dead place, but he renews us, right? He gives us life. He 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 gives us a heart that loves him and and is able to believe all the things that he's done for us. And so now we can finally see sin for what it truly is. It's filthy. It's dirty. It's disgusting. It, It placed our Savior on the cross. And so with hearts filled with gratitude and love for what he's done for us, we obey. We aim to put away sin. We aim for purity. We we do good works because Jesus has saved us in such a way that we will never taste guilt again. He has given us everything. He has laid down his own life for ours. He has loved us more than we can ever imagine. So we ought to live his way instead of our own. But even this is by faith. Trusting that God will finish what He started in each of us. But when we fail, because we will, when we fail, there is no more fear of condemnation for those who believe. Christ has finished it, He has won everything for us. God's attitude toward you does not shift, it never ebbs or flows depending on how you're performing. You are secure. You are loved forever, adored forever, cherished forever, embraced forever by God because of Christ. Jesus is the better prophet. His death doesn't just bring the one man to life like in Elisha's story, but the many who believe. The man that Elisha's bones brought to life will die again But all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ will never die. Elisha remains in the grave, but Jesus is alive. Jesus is the better prophet. And Elisha's life and his death point us forward to him. So may all of our eyes just continually look to that Savior whose precious gift secures us all. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the ability to come together and hear your word. Um, We want to thank you, Lord, that through it you've revealed to us the wonderful grace and mercy found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that so oftentimes we believe that our standing before you and your acceptance of us depends on what we do But Lord, would you cast our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ, the one who stands in our place, the one who died in our place and who was raised for us, Lord. May we be convinced that your love and affections towards us are rooted in what Jesus has done, that we never have to fear that we're being cast off from you. We never have to fear what guilt will do because we are safe in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.